I'd like to start by saying uh, congratulations. Congratulations. Well done. You did it. Uh, completing your high school education signals a huge transition in your life from youth to adulthood, which, which carries all sorts of exciting and, and scary changes. Uh, it's, it's an awesome, awesome stage of life. And as your pastor, along with our whole church body, the aim of all our work, all our prayers, all our teaching, all our discipleship has been to aid your formation into mature disciples of Jesus Christ, equipped and eager to go and make more. And now, as we consider your your deployment into the world as disciples of Jesus, uh, we who've gone before you, we're well acquainted with the trials and temptations That await you. We know how difficult it is to walk by the Spirit and resist the temptations of the flesh. We know the powerful pull of the world to corrupt and deceive our hearts. We face the schemes and plots of the devil. And we've heard the statistics. We've heard the statistics of the countless students who, upon graduating from high school, will leave the church and abandon Christ. So therefore, this this message, it it aims to encourage and strengthen you in the midst of this major transition when seemingly your faith will be most challenged. And for this, we're going to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, in which the author is exhorting the readers of Israel uh, to hold fast, to stay faithful to Jesus, presenting them with two glorious gospel realities as the unbreakable foundation for a life committed to Christ. So let's go ahead and read our passage, pray, and then dig in. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. God's word says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed to the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, we need your help now. I need your help. We know uh, mere rhetoric does not change hearts. Only your spirit does. And so we're asking, have mercy on us, Father. Open our eyes and our hearts to receive uh, the glory and beauty of your Christ as displayed in this passage. Encourage us, strengthen us. May this message be seared on the hearts of the students in such a way that they hold fast. So, Father, we ask this all on you. This is all dependent on you. May you get the glory. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So the author starts by stating the first uh, gospel reality before giving the central charge in verse 14. So look at verse 14 there with me. The author writes, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And as you can see here, the central charge in this passage is to Hold fast. And it's, it's supported, it's, it's based and grounded in a particular gospel truth. That is, we have a great high priest. 
So before we think through what it means to hold fast our confession, let's spend some time unpacking this gospel reality. And to do so, it's crucial that we first understand the background of a high priest in the Older Testament. See, this, this letter uh, to, written to the Hebrew people, uh, the Jewish people, uh, they had the, their whole mindset and religious uh, uh, mindset was profoundly shaped by the Older Testament. In other words, everything they knew about God and their relationship with him was rooted in the story of God's relationship with Israel recorded in Scripture. And put most simply, in the Older Testament, the role of a high priest in Israel was to serve as a human mediator between God and the people. Put another way, the high priest functioned as the representative of man to God and God to man. And this special role of the high priest was most clearly observed in what is called the Day of Atonement, which is probably the most important uh, calendar day of Israel. But for us to understand uh, its significance, we need to have some, just some basic knowledge uh, of, about the temple and the sacrificial system. So first, for the Jewish people, the temple was the center of worship. And in this way, it's, it's similar to what church is for us today, but it was also radically different. See, we don't have a space or a room in our building that houses the very presence of God in such a way that if you wrongly entered that room, you're dead. But that was the case for the people of Israel. And, and that room was called the Holy of Holies. And as you can see here from this picture, it, it contained the Ark of the Covenant, which was, was basically a, a gold-covered chest that housed the written word of God. And, and the lid on that Ark was called the Mercy Seat, which symbolized the throne that God ruled Israel from. And, and notice on the lid, it doesn't have, there's two cherubim, two angels on the side, but there's no carved image or statue to represent the God that they worship. And that was strategic. It was to teach that there was no image that you could create that could display accurately the glory of God. And his throne was therefore empty in that way. And this room was called the Holy of Holies, and it was separated from the rest of the temple by a veil. And no one could enter this room, the very presence of God, besides once a year. And now with that basic structural understanding of the temple... We need to also consider the sacrificial system given by God to Israel. And, and quite frankly, uh, the idea of, of slaughtering an animal on an altar as worship to God probably strikes us moderns as a little bit odd and even confusing, maybe troubling. But when we understand the purpose of the sacrifices and what God was teaching Israel, it will make much more sense to us. And, and here's, a, here's a brief summary of the big idea. Since the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, all of humanity has sinned. We all have turned away from God, the creator of heaven and earth. And as a result, the world has been drowning in the evil and perverse effects of sin ever since. Disease, murder, rape, abuse, infidelity, and every other form of wickedness has come into history as a result of the rebellion of man against God. And therefore, all humans, all humans, every single one of us deserve death delivered by the righteous judgment of God, who cannot stand to let sin ravage and destroy the creation that he loves without justice being served. But God is loving, right? He's merciful. 
And he didn't leave or abandon us, but instead he made a plan to restore humanity back to himself. And this eternal plan to save sinners started with a man named Abraham. You, you know the story probably. God chose this man, Abraham. He promised to give him a rich and prosperous land and countless number of descendants who would turn and bless all the families of the earth. And sure enough, God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. He gave him land and he turned his small little family into a nation of millions called Israel. And to help this new nation, this millions of people live according to his ways, God gave them commands. He gave them instructions, all recorded in what we call the Older Testament. But like us, the people of Israel, they weren't perfect. They were sinners. And so they would disobey and break God's commands, creating a rupture and a severance in their relationship with God. But instead of judging them right then and there, and God in his great mercy and desire to to continue in a relationship with them, to give them life and to not give them death, he set up a way. He set up a way to restore their relationship. And this is where the temple and the sacrificing of animals comes together. See, instead of the people receiving the punishment of death for sin that they deserved, God graciously allowed them to sacrifice an animal, an animal as their substitute. That is, when the animal was put to death, it served as their representative, as if they were the ones suffering the judgment of death so that they might go free. And so throughout the year, every time these sacrifices were made, every time the people of Israel saw an animal put to death on their behalf, it reminded them of one of God's great mercy, but also of the horrible and vicious nature of sin and how it always leads to death. And it was the priest and the high priest who were given the responsibility of making these sacrifices before God on behalf of the people. And so, again, they they served as human mediators between God and man. And and so with that basic knowledge of of the temple and the sacrificial system, we can better understand the role of the high priest on the Day of Atonement. See, while both the priest and high priest, they made sacrifices for sin throughout the year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest and only the high priest was permitted to enter the Holy of Holies. The place of God's very presence. The place that if you went in wrongly, you would die. And he would go and he'd make a sacrifice for the sins of Israel as a whole, bringing them into right relationship with God. And so for the people of Israel, the role of the high priest, it was just huge. From their perspective, the spiritual life of the entire people rested in his hands on the Day of Atonement. He was responsible for securing God's favor and blessing and forgiveness for the people. Therefore, rooted in this rich history and background, when the writer in our passage says we have a great high priest, the readers would have immediately understood Jesus as the mediator between them and God. In fact, the whole sacrificial system was set up by God in the Old Testament and it pointed to Jesus who would enter the Holy of Holies. Our author says it this way, he passed through the heavens into the sacred and blazing fire of God's holy presence. And he made a perfect and final sacrifice for our sins, not by the blood of a goat or a boat, a goat, a goat, but by his blood. 
<laughs> By his blood. See, this great high priest, he's not like those who came before. And, and this is made clear by how the author connects Jesus as the high priest to his identity as the son of God. Look in verse 14 there with me. He writes, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. This means that the same Jesus who earlier in the letter, the author told us he's the creator of all things. The very radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. The same Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power and now sits at the right hand of God the Father with everything under his control. This Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It is this supreme and divine reigning Jesus, God in flesh, who is our high priest. Who brings us into a right relationship with himself. And this, this gospel reality is what grounds, is what supports the exhortation. That is, because the eternal Son of God is our high priest, the author exhorts us and he says, Dear saints, hold fast. Hold fast to your confession. In other words, the author is encouraging the readers, when life is hard, uh, when sorrow abounds, when doubt creeps in, when sin discourages, when death is near, hold fast to this confession. You have a great high priest, the eternal son of God. Now, if that's not enough to keep us going, to keep us in the faith, the, the author gives us a second glorious gospel reality in verse 15 to support this same charge. Look there with me. He writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Here it's like the author, he like slows us down before we make too much of Jesus's divine nature as the son of God to the detriment of his human nature. See, the mystery of Jesus's incarnation, God becoming man, is that he is both fully God and fully man at the same time. Without any confusion, change, division, or separation. And if your mind is stretching to comprehend such a mystery, then you're in good company. Because when it comes to doctrines like the Trinity and the Incarnation, my professor always said, we don't somehow like explain philosophically uh, these holy and deep divine mysteries away. That's why they're mysteries. We just confess them in faith. We honestly observe what God has revealed to us in his word and we confess it to be true even when it defies human logic and reasoning because we trust in the God who revealed it to us. And so, and so that's what we have going on in these two verses. While verse 14 emphasizes Jesus' divinity as the son of God, verse 15 emphasizes the genuineness of his humanity as our high priest. And according to the author in verse 15, we should be encouraged to hold fast by the fact that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And note the double negative. We do not have a high priest who is unable. Do not unable. This is strategic on the author's part. He's, he's putting strong emphasis on the negation to further highlight the contrasting positive assertion. That is, contrary to having an unsympathetic high priest, we have one in Christ who in every, every respect has been tempted as we are. 
Saints, our high priest is not like Clark Kent, who only appeared human until he entered the phone booth and came out as some alien creature named Superman. No, Jesus is fully human. While he never ceased to be the second person of the Trinity, he didn't draw upon his deity to somehow eject out of the human experience or escape the human experience. He didn't use some cheat code every time it got difficult to evade the pains and sorrows of life. Rather, the author said he was tempted, which could also be translated tested in every way as we are. This means that Jesus knows what it feels like to be you, to be you. He knows what it feels like to be tired and lonely, to be rejected and humiliated, to face hard temptation after hard temptation, to be betrayed by a friend. He knows what it feels like to be misunderstood and falsely accused. He knows what it feels like to mourn over the death of a loved one, to wrestle with God in prayer. Saints, he knows what it feels like to bleed and die as a human being. He knows our frame. He knows you. And this is the great mystery. Jesus, who is majestic and eternal, Christ, who says, I am the great I am, took on flesh in such a way that he has fully experienced what it means like to be us, frail, misty, fleeting human beings. He knows our frame. And that's why the author, he can assure us that we have a high priest who is able, he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And, and that word sympathize is a compound word. It's made up of a prefix that means with and the root, which means to suffer. So Jesus, in a way, co-suffers with us. That is, since he has been affected by the same struggles and trials, he has this ability to have compassion on us. And amazingly, note, according to this passage, when does Jesus sympathize with us? When is his heart breaking and going out to us? When we're killing it in our prayer and devotional life, right? When our bodies are health and healthy and strong, when we stayed within our budget this month and we're just fiscally responsible, when we work diligently to get all our homework done, when we're patient and kind with our children, when we're fearless and bold and loving in our neighbors, that's not what the text says. According to this passage, the heart of Christ is drawn to us when in our weaknesses. When we're beat down by sin, when we're full of shame and guilt, when we're sick and diseased, when we're doubting and prayerless, when we feel so distant from God, that's when Jesus' heart is bursting with compassion over you. That's when. That's when he's drawn to you. We had an eventful Christmas this past year. Uh, originally, we planned to spend almost a week in our hometown, uh, visiting with family and friends. But on Christmas Eve, our plans took a drastic change. I still remember when Tiffany got the phone call from her sister as we were leaving my family's house. And on that phone call, her sister mentioned, like, she's had an up stomach, upset stomach all day. And uh, she also found out that Tiffany's mom had, like, a suddenly purged her last meal earlier that day. And so immediately Tiffany becomes concerned. She's even entertaining the idea of leaving for home. And I say entertaining, she's like, let's go. Um, 
we came, in case we came down with it too, and I tried to assure, like, hey, let's not make rash decisions. Let's not, you know, leave. Let's see what happens tomorrow. Da, da, da. So we get back to her sister's house and, where we were staying, and as we were talking about the situation with her and her husband, we heard what almost sounded like a loud call <coughs> come from the bedroom that our 20-month-old son, Levi, was sleeping in. I told Tiffany, it's probably nothing. Don't worry. But she's a good mom, and so she went and insisted to check on him because I would have let him lay in his throw up. And that's when everything broke loose, okay? Before I knew it, I was holding Levi as he was vomiting all over me and the floor. Another family member was dry heaving and running to the bathroom to throw up and then coming back to help clean up the throw up. And another started blowing thunder out of their colon. Like, just... Boom, like it just went off. It was crazy. All on Christmas Eve. It was crazy. It seriously felt like a movie. The scene was so funny. We couldn't keep from laughing even though it was horrible. And uh, <laughs> it's just great. And I bring this up because you might have thought as Levi, little Levi, expelled digested yogurt and blueberries onto my shirt and onto the floor, um, that I would like put him down to fend for himself, let him take care of that vomiting and then I'll pick him back up. But actually, I wanted I, to not let him go. Sure, I faced him outward, okay? <laughs> right, That's, I mean, come on. Uh, but this 20-month-old precious little boy never had the stomach flu. He never vomited uncontrollably like that before. He didn't know what was happening. And so instead of abandoning him in his weakness, my heart was even more filled with concern and pity on him so that I clinged to him even tighter. I, I wanted my embrace to show him that I wasn't going anywhere, even in this nasty mess. I wasn't leaving. Friends, I'm a broken selfish and sinful man. And my heart was filled with compassion and drawn to my son and his weakness. How much more does the infinitely pure and patient and merciful heart of Christ, how much more is it drawn to us in our weaknesses? See, we often mistakenly believe that our weaknesses make Christ pull away from us, but indeed they provoke his heart toward us all the more. He's not the one who leaves. We leave. We pull away. He's stable. He's, he's fixed. Uh, he's our, high, our sympathetic high priest who's passed through condemnation and death in all the heavens for us while we were sinners. That's when he did it. Hence, firmly built on the foundation of these two gospel truths, look at what the author urges us to do in verse 16. It's amazing. This is what he says. Let us then with confidence draw near, near to the throne of grace. So, so the author pleads with us, dear broken and hurting sinner, don't run, don't hide, come, come close, come with confidence. My heart breaks for you. It awaits you. You have a great high priest, the son of God, and he has compassion on you, not in your perfections, not in your successes, but when you fail horribly and you think no one wants you. That's when Christ's heart is spilling over with concern and desire to help you. And he will. And, and that word confidence, it, it implies this, this idea of like this unashamed, free, and just open heart. And the phrase with confidence is placed in the emphatic position. So it's before the verb to highlight, to, to stress this manner or way in which we are called to draw near. With boldness, the author says, with joyful assurance. 
And, and that phrase draw near is a, another important term to note because it's often used in a technical way uh, to describe the act of approaching God in worship, especially to make a sacrifice as a, as a priest, such as the, on the Day of Atonement. He was drawing near when he entered the Holy of Holies. And this makes sense because the author urges us to draw near to what? The throne of grace, which is exactly what the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant symbolized. God's very throne. So then put it all together, because we have a great high priest who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses, we should not avoid the presence of God, but we run to him with great confidence and boldness, knowing that we have gained full access to him through Christ. And what do we receive? What do we find in the presence of our holy God through Christ? Not judgment, not shame, not condemnation. When we are in our time of need, we find mercy and grace. That is God's kindness and love, his favor and blessing, his help and protection. We find salvation. So so brothers and sisters, to the question, why can you hold fast as a broken sinner in a world full of disease and sin and death? And to that question, the author of Hebrews boldly declares, because we have a high priest, the son of God, and he has compassion on you. So hold fast, saints. Hold fast. Fast, dear graduates. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the high priest of Jesus Christ. Thank you that you sent your beloved son to bring us back to yourself. I pray that your spirit would be with us as we want to run from you in our weakness, that we would draw near even more. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.